0: Welcome to Common Home Conversations Pathway to 2022, a series by The Planetary Podcast, part of the civil society celebration and declaration for Stockholm plus 50, a half century later after the historic 1972 UN Conference on the Human Environment. In Common Home Conversations, you will hear high-level political and public figures, academics, and influential activists discuss what should be the content of the high-level declaration foreseen for 2022. Our planet faces a myriad of catastrophic environmental challenges, from climate change to widespread biodiversity loss to desertification. The science is clear. The state of our global environment is deteriorating at an unprecedented rate, highlighting the need for fundamental transformative changes across our legal, economic, social, political, and technological spheres. Thus, there is an urgent need to reach a common ground within civil society and, around it, build a civil society declaration with the potential to be the needed starting point for a paradigm shift towards a safe and sustainable future for our global community, Common Home Conversations is the place to discuss the challenges posed by climate change, as well as possible solutions to help create a stabilized Earth and ensure that the Civil Society 2022 Declaration can be a true game-changer. Now, here is your host, founder, and CEO of the Planetary Press, Kimberly White.
1: And welcome back to Common Home Conversations for part two of our discussion with Maria Espinoza, President of the 73rd Session of the United Nations General Assembly and former Ecuadorian Minister of Foreign Affairs, and Isabella Teixeira, co-chair of the United Nations Environment Program's International Resource Panel and former Minister for the Environment of Brazil. Thank you both so much for joining us again today. Now we were talking about intergenerational equity and climate justice. One other thing I'd like to go into just a little bit further, and you both touched on this a little bit, is you're both from countries that house the Amazon rainforest. What could this declaration mean for indigenous communities? Yet again, Kimberly and
2: Isabella, we both come from Amazonian countries, as you said. In the early stages of my career, I devoted so many years to working and living in the Amazon and working with indigenous peoples myself. And what I can tell you is that they have an incredible, sophisticated knowledge about how to manage uh, tropical ecosystems that are so sensitive, so vulnerable. You see a lot of green and a powerful primary tropical rainforest. But, you know, any minor disruption can really alter the uh, very sophisticated life cycle of a tropical rainforest. And indigenous peoples, they have uh, lived there for thousands of years and they know how to take care of the Amazon. And I, I don't want to be an essentialist. But uh, basically, I think that there is a lot to learn, that the Amazon is at a crossroads right now. If you look at the deforestation patterns, at the uh, land use, uh, dramatic changes in the Amazon, but also the life conditions of indigenous peoples, it's extremely worrisome in terms of the rights, in terms of uh, access to basic services. Unfortunately, the Amazon in our respective countries continue to be our internal colonies. Let's look at Ecuador, but there are more cases uh, like Ecuador. Basically, Ecuador income comes mainly from oil exports. I would say practically every barrel of oil that Ecuador exports comes from the Amazon. And that brings, depending on the oil prices, but let's say 50, 60% of our revenue. And if you look at the living conditions of indigenous peoples, uh, not only in Ecuador, but the, in the Amazon, they are the poorest of the poor. And this has been so evident, so obvious with the COVID-19 pandemic in terms of access to healthcare, in terms of water and sanitation, in terms of food security. And I would say, thank God that Indigenous peoples, they have their own organization mechanisms, their own solidarity networks, their own intellectual capacity to gather data, to do their own assessments. There is a platform that was organized by COICA, which is the Confederation of Indigenous Organizations of the Amazon, you know, really being self-sufficient because of the lack of concern, commitment, and responsibility from their respective governments. And with that said, I think that, uh, of course, indigenous peoples are key players to find a new way to manage the Amazon. They're key players. Their presence is a transboundary presence. They have families across borders. They understand the ecological dynamics of the tropical rainforest, and they have to be also at the decision-making table. They have the voice, they have the knowledge, they have the experience, but also they are subjects of a tremendous, profound rights deficit. You name it, I mentioned that in terms of food security, in terms of access to health, in terms of quality education. So there is a lot that our societies need to do. There is a very soon, hopefully, a report, very significant report produced by the Science Panel for the Amazon, which are hundreds of scientists, mostly from Amazonian countries that have come together to produce this state-of-the-art situation of the Amazon. I have the privilege to serve in their advisory committee. And I share that also, Isabella, with Sebastian Salgal. And we are both part of the strategic committee of the science panel for the Amazon. And we are working closely, very much looking forward to their report. And it's going to be, in my opinion, a game changer. But I say that these are strong words, but we need to decolonize the Amazon. And the way to decolonize is to work closely with indigenous peoples, but also with Amazonian citizens in general. The situation of Amazonian urban settings and cities, for example, is one of the most challenging situations. And well, I can speak about the Amazon for hours and hours. It's uh, obviously one of my passions, but your question about indigenous peoples, their roles and indigenous peoples from the Amazon. They need to have, they are entitled to have a seat in the decision-making table. But beyond that, indigenous peoples have made a tremendous contribution in the Paris Agreement, in crafting climate-related agreements. They have a strong voice when dealing with agriculture and the multilateral decisions, etc. Well, to make it short... They are strong, articulated, intelligent, and much-needed voices in the global governance arrangements and in the decision-making processes, not only at national, but also at international levels.
3: Yes, I fully agree with you. I'd like to add two or three comments because my first perspective is something that you mentioned as a critical issue. We need to decolonize Amazonia. And for this, it's not only the national interest or national perspectives. We need to know Amazonia or Amazon region. My feeling is that the world also doesn't know or has different ways to approach Amazonia without necessarily understanding all the dimensions of Amazon regions. Uh, Indigenous people connect almost all these dimensions of Amazon region. This is something very important to pay attention because politically, I used to say that uh, Amazon puts Brazil in the world, and today Amazon keeps Brazil out of the world, okay? Because we need to have a common understanding, not only about the importance to protect for climate security, for example, climate stability of Amazon protection, but we need to understand better what Amazon means. And you go into the international community. You know this better than I. That when you go into our countries, that are part of Amazon regions, we are seen as middle-income countries. But when you go into Amazon region, we have low-income countries. This is a huge mistake for international community. When you go into to address funds, for example, international funds, no, no, I cannot support you because you are from Peru, from Brazil, and middle-income countries, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It's not true. Okay. We need a new lens to approach Amazon regions, and in my perspective, I do believe that we need to specialize Amazon diplomacy to understand how we like to address common goods. This is very important to pay attention politically and geopolitically, because everyone likes to discuss Amazonia, even Brazilians, without necessarily knowing a lot about Amazonia. I like too much because you have your passion in Amazonia, as I have my one. But we cannot forget that in Brazil, 80% of people that live in Amazonia, they live in cities. I'm talking about 27 million people that live in Brazilian Amazon. It's not uh, 1 million people, it's 27 million people. So it's absolutely important to understand that that's why I mentioned so much about local needs. And indigenous people are part of this because you have also diversity. This is so rich the diversity of indigenous people that have Amazon vision, that we need to understand how to address not only their needs, but their political role or their innovative political role as you mentioned. I fully agree that they must have a seat at the international tables, but we need to understand how we approach the diversity of interests and knowledge and also the legitimacy of these indigenous people, not only in the Amazon region, but also in South America. And you know that you have the privilege to have the origin of our society based exactly on indigenous people. This is fascinating because this means that it's a civilizatory trace for our societies. It's exactly based on indigenous people. And that's why I do believe that we need to use this global debate or this global commons debate to make clear for our national society the importance of the indigenous people for our national ID. As Brazilians, as Amazon people, etc., etc., we need to understand better the role of the indigenous people for our future, but also to recognize, as you mentioned, how our prejudices, our political prejudices to understand their importance and to recognize the political space that they need to assume. And my feeling is that you need to learn the importance of indigenous people if you want to have this New perspectives of the world and new perspectives of our region consider the challenge of development. It's not something like a part of our society that is distant of us. No, these are our roots. And we need to be closer. We need to recognize that we don't have all the elements to dialogue with them and even to bring them on board. We need to address for us the new political rules to learn with their experience and their knowledge. And more than this, in my perspective, we need to understand how they will share solutions and innovative perspectives for our uh, sustainable when inclusive development. My feeling is that uh, not only the international community, but in my country, most Brazilians don't know a lot about how to come together with indigenous people. And I think that, as you mentioned, the new report that is coming will be very elucidative about our challenges. And this is innovative political perspective considering indigenous people, not only in Amazon region but around the world. My feeling is that this is one of the critical political challenge that you need to face if you want to go forward considering global commons agenda and planetary boundaries. Without their knowledge, without their political role, without their political presence, it would be very tough to address concrete solutions for humankind in the next year. So it's, again, a lesson from Amazon Vision, something that is like a password, okay? If you're able to come with them, if you're able to learn with them, if you're able to address solutions based on their knowledge, if you're able to understand our political role to move forward in this contemporary age, we need indigenous people to gather with us. So I think that uh, for Amazonia, it's not to only stop deforestation, stop the setback, the environmental degradation and fragmentation, and also to understand the role of environmental service. We need to go into the future and we need to understand how the Amazon region will bring our countries into a new development global agenda. This is very fascinating politically, and for this, we need to recognize the lack of abilities in our political domain uh, to face the challenges and ask for the indigenous people to
1: support us and to be close to us. Thank you so much for your insights on that important topic. Now, unfortunately, human development appears to give value to nature only after it has been destroyed for resources and commodities and fails to recognize the true value of the intangible work of nature. Our natural world has been plagued by overexploitation throughout the years, and a 2019 report from the Intergovernmental Science Policy Platform on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services states, Quote, the biosphere upon which humanity as a whole depends is being altered to an unparalleled degree across all spatial scales. Biodiversity, the diversity within species, between species and ecosystems, is declining faster than any time in human history. End quote. Furthermore, the recent statement for the Finance for Nature report highlights that the interrelated crises of widespread biodiversity loss, climate change, and land degradation require immediate action. A planetary system that supports life on Earth is our most valuable asset. I mean, what could be more important and valuable to us, the intangible work performed by forests to stabilize the climate, or the cutting of trees to extract timber? Maria, can recognizing our global commons as a common good without borders be the conceptual solution to trigger the paradigm shift we need to help us realize the true value of nature?
2: Thank you for this question, Kimberly, and I think that there are perhaps three critical issues. Uh, The number one is when we were discussing about the Amazon and what to do on the future of the Amazon, there is a critical issue that we need to discuss and rethink, which is the very concept of sovereignty. Basically, most countries argue that we have to respect the sovereign right of states to use and exploit their natural resources as they deem necessary, which is fair enough. And this is also embedded in principle 26 of the Stockholm Declaration. It is true. In uh, countries and states have, uh, you know, the authority to decide uh, what is best for its citizens. But it so happens that ecosystems, oceans, climate, they do not respect borders. Even if you look at the Amazon, it's not that Amazonian ecosystems, because there are multiple ecosystems within the Amazon. One tends to think that it's a a very homogeneous ecosystem. It is not. But even then, the diversity of ecosystems that form the Amazon do not respect national borders. Same goes for, as mentioned, for oceans. Same goes for any ecosystem, wetlands, mountains, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. There are so many mountains that you know are shared by multiple countries sometimes. So it means that to manage wisely and responsibly ecosystems, the earth system, we need to rethink sovereignty and sovereignty in terms of perhaps shared sovereignty and concerted decision-making to manage a particular ecosystem, a particular service. For example, water resources, there's so many sources of water that are critical to the development of particular communities that I shared by multiple countries. Uh, Water basins do not respect borders. So with that said, I think without going into the details, we need to sit down and think carefully about resignifying sovereignty and also resignifying the common good and the public good. These are concepts that are critical if we are thinking about a new pact between nature, society, and the economy, and politics. This new contract that we are talking about. The second issue is about defining the commons, defining the difference between public goods and common goods. And I won't enter into an exercise of concrete definitions But there is a difference between public goods and common goods and the very concept of a common heritage. And what are the governance designs that make it possible to manage our shared and common heritage for the benefit of humankind and how to go about it? And a very interesting example that can be used for this analysis is oceans. And uh, the different conventions and uh, look at the Convention on the Law of the Sea and access to genetic resources beyond national jurisdiction, which is one of the critical negotiations that are happening at the international level, at the UN level. So what to do with that, but also the shared responsibility over the health of our oceans that are shared among so many countries. And the number three is, okay, if you resignify and you agree on a 21st century definition of sovereignty or 21st century definition of what is a common heritage for humankind, then the third question that we need to answer is, what is the governance, uh, the framework under which we need to operate under a shared responsibility, concerted action kind of governance model. So this is, in my opinion, one of the critical challenges of the 21st century. And if we do not come to grips to these very fundamental questions, we are going to put in risk our very survival. I'm a stubborn optimist, as late Kofi Annan used to say, I think that if we do not solve these uh, critical issues, we are going to be in serious trouble. You know, you name it, uh, hunger, access to food, health, also and equally important, the issue of this trust deficit in institutions, including democratic institutions, this uncertainty that everybody's living under this lack of direction in leadership that we are experiencing. So there is a lot of homework ahead of us. And as I said, the declaration is very promising. This pre-declaration from civil society, uh, Stockholm Plus 49, that uh, seriously considers the principles under which we are uh, working, which is the issue of common public goods, the right to a healthy environment, And uh, what are the governance arrangements we need? I think this is a key part of the conversation. And that should include, for example, our collective responsibility on dealing with pandemics, such as uh, the COVID-19 pandemic and what it means in terms of the health of our ecosystems and our earth system.
1: So, Isabella, this is the decade of action. How can the redefinition of the global commons help us do what is needed in the next 10 years to better address the world's environmental challenges?
3: Thank you very much, Kingler. I First of all, I'd like to fully agree with the three points that Maria highlighted. I think that a critical political issue that must be fully debated and also solved, considered the strategic perspectives, if you want to go into the global commons agenda and how we will face the challenges of this century. The recognition of the global commons and this agenda that Maria mentioned before and then the other side of the coin, I think should help us to understand better how we are interconnected. Global Commons will make clear what are the global new economy challenges that we need to put in practice if you want to have well-being, if you we want to improve our lifestyles, if you want to have a better relationship between humankind and nature. But as a co-chair of the International Resource Panel, together with Yannis the other co-chair, launched the think piece on biodiversity challenge considering natural resource management around the world. But this is something easy to understand. You have four steps to make clear how we need to come together. First of all, we need to know our true impact. Global Commons will help us to do this. Yeah, I do believe this. Need to be conscious, look to understand better the local realities and how unfair and balanced the global development is today. And also what it means. If I can use a, a easy expression, know about your true impact, yes, it's also in my backyard. We need to make sure that we know what's happened with our life, our lifestyles, our countries, our way to live in this planet. The second step is plan together. It means all on board. If you have a global commons, you understand better how we connect to yours or interconnect we are and what are the responsibilities. We need to understand the importance to plan together. To plan the future together, to understand the challenge, to review roots, and then to improve the ways that we want to promote development around the world. The third step is growth with nature. This is something very important that we have been discussing the last time here in this interview. We need to grow, so we need to promote inclusive development with nature. So finally, humankind is back to nature, if I can say this. We are recognized that we are part of the nature. Global Commons means this. Homo sapiens is part of nature, cannot forget it. And the last one is value nature. You need to value nature in different ways. You have the economic ways, and this will come in with multicolor economy. I'm sure that we bring things in an innovative way. But for valuing nature, we need to understand its role in our life. We cannot value anything that you don't know. We cannot value anything that you cannot recognize its importance in our life. You cannot value something that we don't know. So I think that when go and come with the global commons agenda, I hope that you can make it clear, not only that we have responsibilities, that we are interconnected, but that we can understand, we can learn how nature is important for our life and how we are part of nature. And that as human species, we don't have the right to destroy the ecosystem and other lives around the world. So my feeling is that when you go into this agenda, I hope, that as I have mentioned before, that you can have a new momentum of uh, humanism around the world and that you can have probably a new path forward, if I can use this expression between quotes, uh, to bring a new enlightenment for humankind in this century.
1: Absolutely. And I'd just like to add that I think much of the intangible work of nature is often undervalued because it's just taken for granted. Much of it is done silently or goes unseen. I mean, we can't see the atmosphere we breathe that is vital to our survival. We can't hear the work of the forest or the soils sequestering carbon from our atmosphere. And nature does this work 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year, and it does this vital work for free. And you know, recognizing a stable climate as an intangible asset, a common heritage of humankind, can certainly be the way to give value to the work of nature without destroying it.
3: Yes, you're absolutely right. My hope is that the new generations, they understood this better than my generation. So (laughs) I think that uh, we can hope that we will change soon. I do believe in this.
2: Yeah. And I think that also this very classical distinction between price and value, It's not that we are going to solve the destructive and dysfunctional behavior of human societies towards nature by putting a price tag, and that is going to be it. We have seen this, for example, in international carbon markets and how they are working. If nature is not part of the value system of a society, then the pricing is irrelevant because it doesn't work. We're not going to stabilize climate because we are going to put a price tag in carbon. Unfortunately, it's not as simple as that. And just thinking, you were saying, Kimberly, that nature does its work twenty-four-seven because of the ecosystem services and all of that. But, you know, at the end of the day, nature can very well and perhaps much better live without humans. But humans, we cannot live without nature. This is as simple as that. You know, nature cannot care less about us. We are one more of the species, of the millions of species. But we cannot live without nature, without the services that nature provides. But also, I think there is a moral, a spiritual responsibility to ensure the existence and the continuity of life in Earth.
1: Absolutely. I think you both make excellent points. And it's just so important that we understand the work of nature and that we recognize the value of that. I think as we're approaching this decade of action, this decade of ambition, what better time to do it than now? Well, indeed. You know, everybody
2: is uh, repeating the word action, and we need action, and we need action. And of course, we need to walk the talk, and of course, we need action. And I think that peer pressure helps uh, in terms of uh, making sure that we are taking the right decisions at the right time. And unfortunately, the cycles of nature differ from the cycles of politics. So there is a mismatch between the times of nature and the times of politics. Basically, our responsibility is to bring the two cycles closer together. Otherwise, it's going to be very difficult. But us, you know, the voices of civil society, of academia, of science, of young people, of indigenous peoples are more needed than ever.
1: Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Now, it has been nearly 50 years since the 1972 UN Conference on the Environment in Stockholm the first global conference to prioritize environmental issues. The 1972 conference represents a historic turning point in the development of international environmental politics. Currently, we are facing converging crises with climate change and widespread biodiversity loss. Given the emergencies we face, do you believe that the 50th anniversary of this landmark conference could be the new turning point for multilateral environmental solutions to our shared problems? Maria, let's start with you. Of course, sometimes when you sit
2: at the UN, you hear governments saying, well, we don't need another summit. We don't need another conference. We really need to act and implement and deliver. It's partially true because I strongly believe that one of the challenges of the multilateral system is the implementation deficit. We have said and repeated over and over again of this action, the need for action. So conferences are seen, you know, as talk shops, as mirages to solve real problems, etc. But in this case, I have to say that this Stockholm Plus 49 and the Stockholm Plus 50 is going to be an opportunity to rediscuss, to recommit, to rethink because of the profound changes that our world has experienced in the last 50 years. I would say that the Stockholm plus fifty has to be shaped and built in two moments. A moment for analysis and assessment of what we have done with the declaration of 50 years ago and what is the state of the world. And the second part is action-oriented, an accountability framework, a commitment for the present and the future. So I think these are political moments. That need to be used in full by civil society, by governments themselves, and to recommit. And I think it is time for recommitment, for reflection, for analysis of what we have done wrong at the end of the day, because the numbers and science, science is telling us that we are not going in the right direction. And this is uh, pretty obvious when you look at climate, what we have mentioned during this conversation. Look at the state of our ecosystems, oceans, forests, you you name it. The extinction crisis. So basically, what is the model of society? What are the governance arrangements? What is the action-oriented commitments that are going to emerge from this Stockholm Plus 50 conference? And I think this is extremely important. At this point in time, we should make sure, and I say we should make sure, societies, citizens, we should make sure that the Stockholm Plus 50 really translate into commitments, into action, into accountability frameworks, into a societal change. And I think that the COVID-19 pandemic is going to help to do that. Because we have seen that the way we are living, the way we are facing the pandemic, it's really not the best. It is not only about the environment, as I mentioned before. It is a civilizatory crisis, a planetary crisis that needs to be seriously addressed by world leaders, but by societies as a a whole. And I really hope that Stockholm Plus 50 also engages conversation and dialogue at the regional level, at the local level that cities have a say because it's extremely important. The majority of people live in urban settings right now. So what is the voice of local authorities, of mayors, of cities, of the feminist movement uh, about these issues? So it is going to be a golden opportunity to unleash a global conversation and dialogue, to recommit, to um, reflect and assess, but also to commit for and action-oriented, transparent and accountable actions uh, regarding uh, our environment, the care for our environment. And we also hope that uh, Stockholm Plus 50 is going to give a political backing and a push to the global pact for the environment.
1: Thank you, Maria. Now, Isabella, I'd like to ask you the same question. Given the emergencies we face, do you believe that the 50th anniversary of this landmark conference could be a new turning point for multilateral environmental solutions to our shared problems?
3: First of all, we cannot forget that when you have 50 years ago Stockholm conference, you have a momentum in the world that is completely different to what you have today. So I agree that we don't need conference around the world. We need political rooms to bring people together to discuss the present and the future. And learning with our experience, considering the past. If 50 years ago it was important to join the countries around the world to discuss environment and development, or developing environment because it was the decision that was taken, not based on other issues but based on development, I do believe that we need to rediscuss what develop means in this century because we have a different countries and we have different requirements political, economic, and social ones. And inequalities is one of the peak of these icebergs that you need to understand better and how you address this. There is no future for humankind if you are not able to address social inequality in short-term perspective. Be sure about this, okay? And pandemics, again, COVID pandemics, showed to us that this is a critical issue, really a critical issue. My second point here that I also think that is very important is to have the civil society engagement and commitment it's absolutely important that you can have new political rooms to understand what civil society means around the world today and also what is the role of civil society for the transformative change needed for the multilateral environmental solutions. This is something very important to be observed because our experience shows that we can mobilize civil society as the international community. We can bring civil society with us, but not necessarily we can share all the tools all the mechanisms at the same level with the civil society around the world. It's so unequal how we put the practice, our recommendations, and how indeed we can have international cooperation to play strategic roles, consider the diverse situations of civil society around the world. So something is very important to be observed here. This is the quality of the democracy around the world. Without democracy, it's impossible to address the solution that we're looking for to address, considering the global challenges that nature is bringing to us now. Okay, so it's absolutely important when you go into the international process that society must be recognized who they are, what are the needs. This is something very important. When you go into the past, go in 1972, it was part of the state members. You didn't have civil society there. In Hill 92, we have an open gate. It was really important. And here, plus 20, and Paris Agreement also. But we have these movements around the world about global society engagement. And we need to understand that when you go to European countries, this engagement is completely different when you go to the United States or if you go in Ecuador or in Brazil. Or in China, when you have some difficult civil society engagement. So it's absolutely important that you understand how we will facilitate, how we host the diversity of civil society around the world. If you want to consider the challenges that the multilateral environment system demands, if you want to not only share the problems, but share solutions. Diversity and multiple and creative solutions means to bring all on board with different dynamics and the same points of interest. Pay attention, because politically it's not easy. We can convince people, we can bring people together, but if you're not able to convince people to act based on their realities, forget it. The challenge is not based on the small-scale projects. The challenge that you're facing now, the solution that you need, requires a really ambitious project. And as Maria mentioned, we need accountability, we need transparency. It's very important to understand how we recognize the multilateral international system today. Unfortunately, it's not enough to address the problems that must be solved, considered common global issues. We need a new way to believe in humankind. And that's why I fully believe that a green enlightenment with a political solidarity probably is a really good password to move beyond Stockholm Plus 50 and be sure that we're able to be part of this planet with a new perspective, sustainable ones, and bring a really important input for international order and also for multilateral system. We know what the problems that we have today. What is not clear, how we want to be together and how we like to share, not only responsibility, but hope. And I do believe that we can do this. And I hope that this movement will bring the new generations, the new players, the new stakeholders, to understand that if you are not in the past, you are today with us and you will be in the future. So let's do it together. Let's manage this better. Let's reshape our interests. more than this. I think that we have really a huge opportunity. I think that Maria mentioned this. We have to re-signify our existence in this planet. Only us can do this. Nobody else can do this. Only humankind. So this is a moment that we need to be smart, to be ambitious, but we need to look for solidarity.
1: All right, Isabella and Maria, thank you both so much for joining us again today. It has been such a pleasure. Thank you very much. Okay, and let's fight for a better world. Wonderful. I have enjoyed very much this
2: conversation and very much looking forward to seeing the world, you know, wake up. And like you, Isabella, I'm a stubborn optimist, and I think that we can make it happen together with vision and commitment.
1: All right, and there you have it. We will not solve human society's destructive and dysfunctional behavior towards nature by putting a price tag on it. We are not going to stabilize the climate by putting a price tag on carbon. If nature is not part of the value system of society, then pricing is irrelevant. It's time to give value to nature. And the declaration for Stockholm Plus 49 is the opportunity for civil society to spark a global conversation. It's a chance to recognize a shared common heritage for the benefit of humankind. It's a chance to recommit, to reflect and assess, and to commit to transparent and accountable actions for our environment. We have a responsibility to ensure the existence and the continuity of life on Earth for future generations. Remember, nature can live without humans, but humans cannot live without nature. It's as simple as that. That is all for today, and thank you for joining us for this episode of Common Home Conversations. Please subscribe, share, and be sure to tune in on July 28th for our next episode. And visit us at www.ThePlanetaryPress.com for more episodes and the latest news in sustainability, climate change, and the environment.